From New York, this is Democracy Now! It was like a classic kidnap, like the ones they used to do. It just hasn't happened in a long time. They came, threw the taxi driver out of the car. They got in, put my head down and tied my hands. They put me on my knees and a pistol to my head. Prominent Russian journalist Elena Melashina suffers brain injury after being violently attacked while reporting in Chechnya. We'll go to Moscow. But first to Kyiv, as Ukrainians mourn the death of writer Victoria Amelina. She was killed in a Russian airstrike in Kramatorsk. We'll speak with her friend Andrei Kirkov, one of Ukraine's best-known authors. He says her smile sparkled even in the most difficult times. Then to Syria, where the United Nations has established an independent body to investigate what happened to more than 130,000 people who've gone missing during the 12-year conflict. We'll also look at a new BBC documentary, Captagon, inside Syria's drug trafficking empire. My search reveals the role of Syria's most powerful family. No smuggler operates without connections to the regime. And I uncover how the Syrian regime itself has become addicted to Captagon. If Assad stopped the drug trade for 20 days, the economy would collapse. And here in the United States, we'll speak with Congressmember Ro Khanna. He's introduced a bill to limit Supreme Court justices to 18-year terms. He was also the only member of the House Armed Services Committee to vote no on the new Pentagon budget. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The International Atomic Energy Agency says it's seen no evidence to back claims by Ukraine's government that Russia's military has planted explosives at the Russian-held Zaporizhia nuclear plant in southern Ukraine. But the IAEA said it needs additional access to all six of Zaporizhia's reactor buildings to be sure. Both Moscow and Kyiv have accused each other of preparing to sabotage Europe's biggest nuclear plant. Overnight, a Russian missile attack on the western city of Lviv killed at least four people and injured 32 others. In eastern Ukraine, an airstrike triggered a massive fireball in the Russian-occupied city of Makivka. Russian officials said the strike hit a hospital, killing one person, injuring dozens. Ukraine's military says the video clearly shows it struck a Russian arms depot. In Minsk, Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko said earlier today the head of Russia's Wagner Group is not in Belarus and is instead in St. Petersburg, Russia. His surprise announcement came after Russian state TV broadcast images of police raids on Yevgeny Prigozhin's office in St. Petersburg and one of his mansions. Prigozhin has not been seen publicly since June 24th. President Lukashenko previously claimed Prigozhin had arrived in Belarus to live in exile as part of agreement that ended a mutiny by Wagner forces as they advanced to within 120 miles of Moscow. President Biden met with Swedish Prime Minister at the White House Wednesday, ahead of NATO's annual summit in Vilnius, Lithuania, next week. Sweden is going to make our alliance stronger and has the same value set that we have in NATO. And uh, really looking, anxiously looking forward for your membership. 
Sweden's bid to join NATO has been blocked by the Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who accuses Sweden of harboring members of the Kurdistan Workers' Party, which is considered a terrorist group by Turkey. Turkey's opposition to Sweden joining NATO is now facing a further challenge as protests have broken out in a number of Muslim countries after two men staged a demonstration in which they tore up and burned a Quran outside a Stockholm mosque last week. This is an Iranian protester speaking Monday in front of the Swedish embassy in Tehran. We declare that we are Muslims, and no country has the right to insult the Quran and cannot desecrate the Quran. And if they insult it, they will be given a strong response. Pope Francis has also condemned the Quran burning. A federal judge in Louisiana has barred Biden administration officials from asking social media companies to remove misinformation from websites and apps. The ruling has broad ramifications for the ability of government officials to engage with the public through popular online forums. In a 155-page ruling handed down Tuesday, U.S. District Court Judge Terry Doty, a Trump appointee, issued an injunction against federal officials and agencies contacting sites like Facebook. Twitter and YouTube, siding with Republican attorneys general who accused President Biden of trying to silence his critics. Judge Doty said several federal officials violated the First Amendment when they asked social media companies to take down misinformation about COVID-19, including false content about vaccines and the effectiveness of wearing masks. The judge also accused officials of suppressing free speech by battling claims that the 2020 presidential election was rigged. Legal observers say the Swedish Sweeping ruling could end up in joining hundreds of thousands of government employees from participating in online debate. In more technology news, Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, has officially launched a rival social media platform to Twitter, which has been struggling to retain users and advertisers since its purchase by billionaire Elon Musk last October. In the latest in a series of unpopular moves, Musk said over the weekend Twitter will begin limiting the number of tweets its users would be able to view per day unless they pay for premium service. Meanwhile, Canada's government says it's halted all advertising on Facebook and Instagram after Meta moved to restrict news content across Canada. Meta's move came after Canadian lawmakers approved the Online News Act, which will require tech companies to pay news outlets for posting their content on their platforms. Google's parent company, Alphabet, has also removed Canadian news articles from search results after calling the new law unworkable. President Biden has nominated Elliot Abrams to the bipartisan U.S. Advisory Commission on Public Diplomacy. Elliot Abrams was convicted in 1991 of lying to Congress about the Iran-Contra affair and later pardoned by then-President George H.W. Bush. He defended death squads in Guatemala and El Salvador in the 1980s as when he was serving as Assistant Secretary of State under President Ronald Reagan. Abrams dismissed reports that El Salvador's U.S.-trained military had massacred 1,000 civilians, including children, in the Salvadoran town of El Mazote in December 1981. He's also been linked to the 2002 attempted coup against Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez and helped plan the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Under President Trump, Abrams served as special envoy to Iran and Venezuela. Abrams will need to be confirmed by the Senate to serve on the commission. The United Nations is warning rates of severe malnutrition in Ethiopia's Tigray have risen sharply, with nearly 9 million people needing food aid in the war-ravaged northern region. 
The World Food Program and the U.S. government, Ethiopia's two largest food donors, both halted deliveries to Degray in April, saying the food was being diverted away from those in need. A Tigrayan official said hundreds have died, including children, since the aid was withdrawn, calling the situation extremely desperate. In Israel, tens of thousands of protesters took to the streets of Tel Aviv Wednesday evening after the city's police commander announced he's resigning under pressure from senior Israeli government officials. Commander Ami Ashed said he would rather step aside than follow the demands of cabinet members who demanded a violent crackdown on protesters opposed to plans by the far-right government of Benjamin Netanyahu to gut Israel's judiciary. This is a protester speaking Wednesday. I'm here today because I'm an Israeli who cares about democracy. I know that if the government decided to fire the head police officer of Tel Aviv only because he decided that it's legal to protest, I think this is one step further for Israel to be a non-democratic state. There were no mass protests in Israel over this week's two-day raid in Jenin, which killed 12 Palestinians, including four children, displaced thousands of residents and razed homes to the ground. Back in the United States, unionized UPS drivers and warehouse workers are moving closer to a strike after contract negotiations broke down Wednesday. More than 340,000 UPS workers represented by the Teamsters are fighting for better wages and soaring cost of living increases in company profits. The current contract expires July 31st. In more labor news, thousands of Los Angeles hotel workers returned to work Wednesday after a three-day strike over the busy July 4th weekend. Workers say more stoppages are to be expected until a deal is reached on fair wages, health care and pension benefits and improve working conditions. And in a major victory for baristas, the National Labor Relations Board ruled Starbucks violated federal labor law when it fired workers at several Pittsburgh stores who were organizing their co-workers. Starbucks now has over 330 unionized coffee shops. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show in Ukraine. Overnight, a Russian missile strike hit a residential building in the western city of Lviv, killing four, injuring 32 others. Meanwhile, in eastern Ukraine, an airstrike triggered a massive fireball in the Russian-occupied city of Makivka. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky vowed there would be a, quote, tangible response— this comes as Ukrainians gathered Tuesday to mourn the death of renowned writer Victoria Amelina. She died as a result of injuries from a Russian strike on a restaurant in Kramatorsk last week, which killed 13 people. Amelina was part of a human rights group, Truth Hounds, investigating Russian war crimes. She had been meeting with a group of Colombians at a restaurant in Kramatorsk when she died. She was remembered by her peers during a funeral service in Kyiv. It was important to her to travel to the deoccupied areas and gather testimonies about Russia's crimes and tell the world about it as much as she can. We did not only lose a writer and poet in her prime, but also a human rights defender, an honest and shining voice on the international stage. For more, we're joined by Andrei Kirchhoff. One of Ukraine's best-known authors, former president of Penn Ukraine, he was a friend of Victoria Amelina. His tribute to her in The Guardian is headlined, Her Smile Sparkled Even in the Most Difficult Times. 
Andrea is the author of dozens of books, most recently Diary of an Invasion. Welcome back to Democracy Now! And our deepest condolences to you, Andre Kerkhoff. She was not only a well-known writer, um, but a friend of yours. Um, can you tell us about Victoria Amelina, how she lived and then how she died? Well, uh, she, she was a normal person. She actually looked very shy when, if you uh, just saw her in the street, she was— uh, a nice, always smiling and shyly smiling uh, person who changed her, uh, I would say, way of life several times because uh, when she was 14, she was taken by her father to Canada to, to immigration. And uh, later, several years later, she decided to go back to Ukraine to her favorite and uh, her uh, own city of Lviv, where she studied computer sciences, and she became a very good programmer. And then she decided to quit the job and to become a writer. And she was writing uh, poems, essays, and uh, she published two novels. But uh, from 2014-15, after the Euromaidan, she became uh, very politically engaged, very socially engaged. She became a member of PEN-Ukraine. She immediately started organizing campaigns to free Alexinsov from Russian prison. I am talking about uh, a film director and writer from Crimea who was accused by Russians of terrorist activities, uh, which was a false accusation, of course, who spent five years in a Russian prison. And since then, she was actually more, I think, active politically and socially than literally, she, because she just didn't have enough time to, to write. And also, when when she was wounded in, in Kramatorsk, she was there together with our colleagues from Latin America, from representatives of the pro-Ukrainian movement, uh, Aguanta Ukraina, Resist Ukraine. And uh, also, I mean, she died on the 1st of July, which is the birthday of another writer, Vladimir Vakulenko, who was killed one year ago by uh, Russian military, and uh, whose body she was looking for for several months uh, before he was, his body was identified in November in the mass grave uh, near Kharkiv region city of Izum. And she recovered his last diaries that he hid under the tree, under the cherry tree of his uh, parents' garden. Uh, actually, several days before uh, she was wounded, on 22nd of June, she was presenting the book, posthumous book, of uh, Volodymyr Vakulenka, where these diaries were included. So uh, she, I mean, she, I, I don't know, because, I mean, she was one of the most active Ukrainian authors, uh, and uh, I would say political and uh, literary activists, yeah. Andre, could you talk about, you've said, I mean, she was working on, since the invasion, uh, documenting war crimes in uh, Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, if you could say she was working on her first uh, nonfiction book uh, in English uh, about war crimes being documented by Ukrainian women. The book was to be titled War and Justice Diary, Looking at Women, Looking at War. Uh, could you talk about that? 
Well, this book was almost finished. I think it's like 80% of the book she wrote. Uh, she wrote it in English so that it would become easier accessible to the publishers abroad. Uh, but uh, actually, uh, last 18, uh, 16 months, uh, she, she was traveling all the time either to the front lines, to the uh, recently liberated Ukrainian territories, and then immediately to the States, to Europe, to report on the uh, atrocities committed by the Russian army. And uh, all all this was for the sake of the book, which will be published, I, I believe. I don't know yet the name of the publisher. But this was her last project, and it will remain her last project. Andrei, could you talk about, I mean, she is one of dozens of writers uh, who have been killed, writers, filmmakers who've been killed since the war began. Uh, could you uh, talk about some of the others uh, who've died uh, in these months, uh, over a year, since the Russian invasion? Well, we have about 30 uh, or maybe probably already more uh, artistic personalities who became victims of this war, victims of Russian army shellings, or who were killed uh, on the front lines as soldiers. Uh, uh, I mentioned already Volodymyr Vakulenko, who was author of books for children, who decided to uh, not to evacuate from his uh, village Kapitolivka in the eastern Ukraine uh, because of his uh, severely disabled son, and who was first taken for questioning uh, in the beginning of March, and then returned home. And second time, he was taken for questioning, and he was never seen again. And uh, he was uh, uh, finally buried in the in December last year. Uh, and uh, well, he 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 is uh, remembered as one of the most sort of tragic victims of this war. I, I can uh, mention, of course, many others, including Yuri Ruf. Uh, who was killed uh, in action. Uh, uh, also, a poet from Lviv uh, who volunteered to become a soldier and who was fighting in eastern Ukraine. But, uh, 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 I mean, probably we'll, we'll, we will have a, a separate book uh, with a, a text written by uh, authors killed by the Russian aggression published in the nearest future. I, I mean, we, we, we don't know when the war is going to end, but it will cost a lot for Ukrainian culture, obviously. Andrei Kerkhoff, we talked to you just over a year ago. You were here in New York um, with a big pen event. Uh, you were talking about your book, Grey Bees, which is known all over. Uh, you've written a new book now. Um, it's called A Diary of an Invasion. Explain how you started writing it. Um, you went back to Ukraine after we spoke, and uh, you just came back to Kiev as well. You were out of the country. Explain the situation for you as a writer in Ukraine now. Well, uh, I mean, I, I do write diaries, but uh, uh, I was writing mostly articles and essays about what was happening from the very beginning of the war and uh, also before the new invasion. Uh, and I was asked by my uh, English publisher, Christopher McLehouse, uh, to send him the texts, which I did. And in the end, uh, actually, 
the book was published first in London in October last year. Uh, it covers the events in Ukraine from December uh, 21 till July 22. And it includes also not only my uh, diary notes, but also articles and essays that I wrote for international media and published in the newspapers like The Guardian, The Financial Times, or in the magazines uh, like The New Statesman and Spectator. Actually, I continue to write essays about what is happening now, and probably they will be included in the second volume of the diaries. Andrei Kirchhoff, again, our condolences um, on the death of your friend and a friend to so many, the Ukrainian writer Victoria Amelina. Andrei Kirchhoff, one of Ukraine's best-known authors, former president of Penn Ukraine. Um, his tribute to her in The Guardian will link to her smile sparkled even in the most difficult times. Andrei is the author of dozens of books, including Grey Bees, his most recent diary of an invasion. We're going now from Kyiv to Moscow uh, to look at how the prominent Russian journalist Elena Milashina has been diagnosed with a brain injury and multiple fractures after she was violently attacked July 4th, along with attorney Alexander Nimov, while on their way to the court sentencing of a human rights activist in Grozny, Chechnya's capital. Unknown assailants beat them, shaved off Elena's hair doused her in blue-green liquid iodine. Her fingers were reportedly broken because she resisted demands to unlock her phone. Elena Milashina reports for Novaya Gazeta, exposing human rights abuses in Chechnya. She described the harrowing attack from the hospital where she was being treated. It was like a classic kidnap, like the ones they used to do. It just hasn't happened in a long time. They came, threw the taxi driver out of the car. They got in, put my head down and tied my hands. They put me on my knees and a pistol to my head. Elena Malashina works for the newspaper Novaya Gazeta, one of the last independent media outlets in Russia, co-founded by the Nobel Peace Laureate Dmitry Muratov, stripped of its media license last year. For more, we go to Moscow to speak with Anna Dubrovskaya. She served as the executive director of Memorial Human Rights Center in Moscow before it was shut down by the Russian government last year. Welcome back to Democracy Now! under um, very sad circumstances as we pro report on the death um, <clears throat> of uh, the Ukrainian writer Victoria Amelina and now the savage attack on um, on Elena Milashina uh, in Chechnya. Can you talk about the circumstances, what you understand? Uh, we had her in our studio years ago um, talking about the gravity of the situation in Chechnya. Now it's different, but she's still been brutalized. Um, hello, Amy. Uh, thank you for having me back. Uh, yes, Elena Milashina, as you said, is one of uh, uh, the bravest uh, Russian journalists who worked a lot uh, covering the human rights violations uh, in Chechnya. And she was indeed uh, on her way to a court hearing in uh, Grozny, but it was not a human rights activist. It was actually a mother of three uh, 
human rights and oppositional activists, uh, Yangubayev brothers, who all of them are outside of Russia at the moment, but their mother was taken as a hostage. And uh, on the day of uh, attack against Helena and Alexander, um, uh, Zarema Musaiva, it's her name, she was sentenced to five and five uh, five and a half years in uh, prison for the falsified case of fraud. Um, this is unfortunately one of the multiple cases when human rights activists are being abused and uh, uh, suppressed. So they would either leave the region and leave the country or stop talking altogether. Um, and uh, this is done so her sons would return back to Russia. And if they do this, they immediately will be taken by Chechen authorities. And we can most surely say that they will be uh, tortured to death or killed right away. So Yelena Milashina from Nova Gazeta, together with uh, Alexander Nemov, who is a lawyer from Committee Against Torture, uh, attorney at law, they were on their way to um, to be at the court hearing. And as Yelena described, she, they were very brutally attacked. It was not the first attack uh, against Yelena in Chechnya. The last time she was attacked about two uh, two years ago. It was also um, in Grozny, also on her way to one of the human rights uh, uh, trial. Uh, and she's probably one of the few persons who always uh, comes back. I cannot say I wish she comes back to Chechnya after what happened, because it's a very clear signal that uh, next time it will be even more brutal than that. Anna, uh, she was actually, uh, in addition, of course, to having been attacked before, uh, Kadyrov, uh, the head of the Chechen Republic, openly threatened her uh, in 2022 last year, calling her a terrorist and terrorist accomplice and demanding her arrest. So could you could you talk about that? And therefore, given his uh, open comments, public comments about her, uh, it was quite extraordinary that she went because she must have known that she would once again be targeted. Um, it's quite, it's both predictable and unpredictable when exactly you will be targeted if you go to Chechnya. Uh, there is a saying that whoever tells you that it is difficult to work in Chechnya, do not believe them because it's impossible to work there. And of course, Yelena knew this uh, very well, but uh, still she made this choice to go and to demonstrate that uh, she is not afraid, that human rights lawyers are not afraid of uh, going that attorneys are not afraid to go there, though it is uh, becoming more and more dangerous. Uh, yes, Kadyrov um, openly, publicly uh, said this uh, speech uh, terrorizing her and blaming her uh, as a terrorist and saying that there will be some consequences. And uh, I think there was a criminal case open because of this speech, but these cases never go anywhere. And right now the criminal case was also open uh, because of this attack, because of attack on uh, Yelena and Alexander. And uh, somehow the reaction of like federal authorities is very, very uh, unique. They are saying that this is absolutely impossible. This has to be investigated. But at the same time, Chechen authorities says that none of that was recorded on the security cameras. We don't know who those people were. Uh, we just basically know nothing about them, but we will keep looking. So it's like um, a very common response by uh, the Chechen authorities and actually all, almost all the other authorities in Russia, whenever a human rights defender, a journalist and an independent lawyer is being attacked, it's uh, more or less always the same uh, response. And we still don't know who killed uh, Natalia Stemirova and we still have no clear picture on the killing of Anna Politkovskaya. So unfortunately, it's um, continuing to go this way. Anna, wasn't um, Elena also covering the situation for the LGBT community in, uh, in Chechnya? 
it was the coverage, yes, of uh, situation with LGBT community. But more important than that, it was um, she was covering the location and existence of the secret prisons uh, in Chechnya. And it's not uh, solemnly targeting the LGBT community, mostly men, but it was targeting basically every... Um, it's not activists, but every person who would speak uh, openly something against uh, Kadyrov's regime, uh, basically no one could have been, uh, could have feel saved uh, in Chechnya if he or she wanted to say something against. Uh, but at some point, a particular wave of repression was targeted um, uh, LGBT men, gay men, and um, unfortunately, yeah, there was a, a wave of uh, that. Uh, we don't know what is happening with that now because the region is extremely closed. Uh, Memorial was... Um, Evicted from Chechnya in 2018 after our colleague Oyub was also uh, imprisoned under falsified case. Uh, and since that time, it's only very random uh, visits of human rights defenders. And unfortunately, uh, they continue to be to be attacked there. And while you were head of uh, Memorial Human Rights Center, as you said, you worked on documenting war crimes in Chechnya. If you could talk about the, the period you covered and also explain uh, Kadyrov's rise to power. Uh, his father had fought against the Russians in the first Chechen war, but then changed sides in the second uh, Chechen war. Uh, so could you explain uh, the position he now occupies how he came to occupy that position and his uh, relationship to uh, Putin. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, Chechnya is a very particular part of Russia with a uh, it's a beautiful uh, region with a very uh, tragic episodes of history. Uh, it was uh, one of the strongest separatist movement after Russia became independent from the Soviet Union and uh, people were uh, bravely struggling to gain uh, more independence or to gain, you know, more uh, fair negotiations about their status with the federal authorities. Uh, unfortunately or fortunately, they, they didn't succeed, like it didn't happen. But then there was a second Chechen war uh, and uh, between those wars and during the during them as well, there were massive terrorist attacks in the region of Northern Caucasus and also uh, in um, uh, like you know f central cities of Russia. Uh, some investigators say that those attacks have been performed by FSB actually to blame it on uh, terrorists from Northern Caucasus. But unfortunately, right now we don't have any evidence to say if it was one or the other. And um, it was used, uh, like, uh, I think that um, Putin's uh, regime and Yeltsin regime, they negotiated some kind of deal with Ahmad Kadyrov, with the father of Ramzan, uh, saying that you will have complete power over this region. If you stop fighting for freedom, we will give you whatever you want. And then you can just, like, you will be the, the king of this of this land. And uh, that's what had or what have happened. And his father was uh, killed by the... A terrorist attack in Grozny on the stadium um, many many years ago, and then the authorities some like uh, came to uh, Ramzan, who was quite young at the moment, um, and now he basically rules a very very harsh dictatorship in the region. So, um, and uh, we always Memorial always said that um, whatever is happening in Chechnya, uh, it does not get any investigation or any proper response from the authorities. And thus, this wave of impunity was growing first in Russia. And then, as we can see, it uh, started also falling on Ukraine, on other countries. And unfortunately, it demonstrates to us again, uh, once we ignore human rights violations that are happening inside uh, the dictatorship like Russia, it will always, always, always end up in a massive, uh, horrible massacres outside its borders. 
borders. Anna Dubrovskaya, we want to thank you so much for being with us, served as executive director of Memorial Human Rights Center in Moscow before it was shut down by the Russian government last year. Next up, we go to Syria, where the United Nations has established an independent body to investigate what happened to more than 130,000 people who've gone missing during the 12-year conflict. And we'll look at a new BBC documentary, Captagon, inside Syria's drug trafficking empire. Then, Congressmember Ro Khanna joins us from South Carolina. Stay with us. Caravan of Life by Masavatat. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh as we turn to Syria. Humanitarian groups Wednesday urged the United Nations Security Council to extend Syria's cross-border aid mechanism for another year in order to ensure the delivery of humanitarian aid to more than 4 million people in northwest Syria after 12 years of war. The mechanism was established in 2014 to enable the U.N. and other humanitarian groups to provide aid to opposition-held areas in Syria without the authorization of the Syrian government government. Doctors Without Borders reports the number of authorized crossing points is now down from four to one, even after an earthquake devastated parts of Syria in February. And the need is enormous. Meanwhile, the United Nations General Assembly's approved a resolution to establish an independent body to investigate what happened to more than 130,000 people who've gone missing during the conflict in Syria and to, quote, provide adequate support to victims, survivors and the families of those missing. The government, the Syrian government, opposed the resolution, along with Russia, China, Belarus, North Korea, Cuba and Iran. This comes as ITV News reports that in the days leading up to the failed mutiny by Wagner Group in Russia, Syrian officials were in talks to increase the number of Wagner fighters in Syria and make Syria its biggest base as part of a lucrative deal with President Bashar al-Assad. In a minute, we're going to look at a new BBC documentary investigating Assad's role in producing the highly addictive amphetamine known as Captagon and how this is impacting his relations with Saudi Arabia and other countries. But we begin with Dr. Zahar Salul, president and CEO of the medical nonprofit MedGlobal, which provides health care in disaster regions, including Syria. He was also a classmate of Bashar al-Assad in medical school. Yes, the president of Syria is also a doctor. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Dr. Zahar Salul. Start off with talking about the 120,000 people it's estimated are missing in the 12 years of this conflict, doctor. Uh, thank you, Amy, for having me. Um, and this is one of the most painful chapters in the Syrian crisis. Um, as you mentioned, 120,000 people are at least missing uh, in the last 12 years, most of them according to human rights uh, organizations by the Assad regime, about 85 percent of them. 
Uh, one of them is um, a dentist and also the chess champion in Syria. Her name is Dr. Rania Abbasi, who disappeared in 2013 by the Assad regime intelligence uh, in the prison with her six children. One of them was 1.5, one year and, and, and a half, and the, the, the oldest was 13 years old. She still disappeared, and no one knows where she. But she's, she's one of tens of thousands of women and children and men who disappeared by the Assad regime, and their families do not know any information about them. Some of the family members got to know that their um, loved ones uh, have died under torture by looking at the pictures of the Caesar files, which, as you remember, this is a person who smuggled um, about 30,000 pictures of people who died under torture by the Assad regime, and some family members discovered that their loved ones died because of torture. Um, so hopefully this uh, will allow the families of the loved ones, who, who, who their loved ones, uh, sons, children, um, uh, sisters, um, and, 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 and fathers have disappeared, to have one source of information about uh, their uh, their family members and hopefully uh, have a closure for this uh, painful chapter. Uh, Dr. Sahlul, how is this mechanism, uh, this institution, likely to work? Uh, what uh, tools will uh, people have to find uh, these disappeared people? I, I mean, I, I, I suppose the assumption is they're either in the prison system or have been killed. Um. When I was young, growing in Syria, my uncle, who was um, in high school, also was forcefully disappeared, or actually he was detained by the father, the, the, the father of current president, Hafez al-Assad. And I remember my grandmothers going every week uh, to the local um, authorities, the intelligence authorities, trying to find some information about him. And every week she comes back humiliated and not knowing what's going on with him. He stayed in the Palmyra prison for 12 years and then suddenly he, he appeared. Uh, so many of the family members do not know any information about their loved ones. They go from place to place. They contact human rights organizations, different ones. So this new entity hopefully will allow more coordinations between the different human rights organizations uh, that collect information about the families and the, and the victims. It should have representations of the victims, uh, the survivals of torture, and also the families, so their voice can be heard. Um, and so that way you have one stop for everyone who lost someone, who um, has someone disappeared in the prisons of Assad, and also other entities who are in Syria. You have also oppositions groups and the SDF who also detained and forcefully disappeared uh, other victims. Could you talk about, you've uh, gone to Syria multiple times uh, to assist in providing medical assistance. You were there just earlier this year after the earthquake. Could you describe the conditions in Syria now? Uh, reportedly, 90 percent, up to 90 percent of Syrians are now living in poverty. It's uh, devastating. Uh, it's painful for me because uh, I grew up in Syria and then came to the United States and practicing uh, physician. Every time I go there, I see the deterioration of the condition and the level of um, this, you know, disparity uh, and also the number of displaced people. Um, I was inside Idlib, northwest of Syria, providing some training on 
new technology that helps physicians uh, to treat trauma patients. Uh, but uh, I was in the middle of large IDP camp that has 500,000 people. Uh, everywhere you see around, you see tents. There is 1.5 million people who live in tents in Idlib. Uh, half of the population, 4 million that you mentioned in your report, are displaced from cities like Homs and Damascus and Aleppo. Uh, and they cannot imagine uh, going back to their cities with the Assad regime still uh, in, in control. Um, and the economic situation is horrible. Uh, the children are everywhere. You, you, you look in the camp, but there is no enough schooling. Um, education is one of the most um, hit sectors in the, in, the, um, in the economy there and many parts of Syria. Also, healthcare is one of the worst hit. According to the WHO, half of the hospitals have been attacked by the Assad regime and by Russia. Uh, you mentioned in your previous piece about the Russian attacks on Chechnya. We believe in Syria that because what happens in Syria, you have now the war in Ukraine. There is direct link between what happened in Syria, where the Russians used illegal weapons. They trained their army. They used, according to them, 300 uh, new weapons in Syria. They targeted hospitals and, uh, um, and uh, civilian buildings like what they did today in Lviv, and now they're doing it in Ukraine because the war did not pay attention to what they were doing in Syria. We're turning now to a new investigation by the BBC that reveals direct links between Syria's trade and the highly addictive amphetamine drug called Captagon and members of the armed forces and Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's family. My search reveals the role of Syria's most powerful family. No smuggler operates without connections to the regime. And I uncover how the Syrian regime itself has become addicted to Captagon. If Assad stopped the drug trade for 20 days, the economy would collapse. That's the opening of the new BBC documentary Captagon Inside Syria's Drug Trafficking Empire. The reporter narrating the piece is Rasha Kandil, senior fellow at the Center for International Policy, a presenter for BBC Arabic. She's going to join us in a minute from Cairo. But first, another clip uh, where she speaks with a Syrian soldier who reveals his role in the Captagon trade, the soldier's identities hidden for their safety. Here in government control Aleppo, we hope to find further evidence of the regime's role. We had the film secretly. This is the rarely seen interior of an army barracks. It's in a strikingly dilapidated state. We find a soldier willing to speak to us if we hide his identity. He tells us his monthly pay is only about 150,000 Syrian lira. 150,000 lira is equivalent to about 25 or 30 dollars. Barely enough for someone supporting two or three kids. So we became dealers selling to people. It's what brings in most of the money now. We ask him to describe his unit's role in the local captagon trade. In 2021, I went out in a convoy with my comrades. We weren't allowed to go to the factory. They'd pick a meeting place and we'd buy from Hezbollah. 
The bags would contain one or four or five kilos. They decide how to fill them. We receive the goods, cover them, and leave. We coordinated with the fourth division. The leaders would coordinate. The fourth division's task was to facilitate our movement. If there was a traffic jam, they'd clear it. Stop the traffic so our convoy could move. Once again, the Syrian army's elite fourth division is named. So too is Hezbollah, the Lebanese Shia political party and militant group. They're close to the Syrian government and have themselves been accused of involvement in drug trafficking. The primary people responsible for manufacturing Capsigon pills are Bashar al-Assad and his brother Maher al-Assad in association with Lebanese Hezbollah. The money goes straight into their pockets. That's a clip from the new BBC documentary Captagon Inside Syria's Drug Trafficking Empire. For more, we're joined by Rasha Kandil. Welcome to Democracy Now! This is a powerful documentary. Um, Captagon may be a new word for people um, outside of the region. Um, it's been described as the poor man's cocaine. Can you tell us about it and how it came to be so prevalent, the production in Syria, but then especially its use in Saudi Arabia? Thank you very much for having me. This is a sophisticated project by the BBC Arabic uh, News Investigations team and the OCCRP. Uh, being the lead reporter of the BBC team on this, we've been following in six countries for a year and a half the network, the web. We've been building this using witnesses, uh, using unseen evidence, WhatsApp conversations, inside testimonies, a lot and a lot of um, leads. So um, it is called that because it's actually not very new, but it's new as a as a as a substance in the Middle East. Uh, originally, it's an amphetamine-like substance, and it has been developed by Germany in the First and Second World War. But the formula being used now is very very different. Uh, so it all, only carries the the trade name of Captagon. We've come to the conclusion after a year and a half of work in six countries: France, Germany, Jordan, Lebanon on Syria and the United Kingdom, there are uh, um, direct links between uh, members of the 4th Division and members of the Assad's family to the trade in the region, which is, as you probably know more than I am, uh, it's flat. Very important project uh, in terms of, uh, or, of the capacity of CRP. We're talking to Rasha Kandil. Um, she is a presenter with BBC Arabic. Um, talking about this drug, um, Captagon, if you can explain, Rasha, how it's determining the geopolitics of the region and um, the acceptance of the Bashar al-Assad regime, uh, inviting them back into the um, Arab community and possibly leading to the lifting of sanctions. Thank you very much for the excellent question. It's actually a force of pressure, not only in the region, but also on an international level. And uh, as for the uh, EU and the United States are concerned, it's, it's that clearly shows, and this is what I indicated, and my team, the brilliant director and all the rest of the team, indicate that um, uh, the, the sanctions on the Syrian and Lebanese people is not actually 
impact that was uh, targeted by the United States and recently by the United Kingdom. It is a force in the region, in the Middle East, and as you know, there, there is a new renormalization with Bashar al-Assad in uh, Arab League recently. And from insider information from the Arab League, I've heard many times throughout filming this investigation that it was actually the main card on the table. And uh, I've been told by prominent sources that Bashar al-Assad was asked directly to control the captagon in the region in return of Syria coming back to the Arab League. So definitely in the coming few months, this is going to be a main factor in a lot of changes in the Middle East, uh, probably in the dynamics as well between Russia and the United States, given the heat happening in Ukraine. And also uh, the trade itself is very, very powerful. The networks are universal now. And the alternative routes uh, that are developed by smugglers every single day are reaching out fast and furious to Europe. And nobody knows yet if it's reaching the United States or not, but nothing is impossible in such trade. Five big spills are being produced every year and consumed by the Gulf. You've uh, pointed to a very important thing, which is why Saudi Arabia is the biggest consumer in this. I've also heard, even though that we haven't really had much um, interaction with Saudi Arabia, they were not... Um, very involved in the film, but I've heard from prominent sources in the Gulf that they consider this to be a war by Bashar al-Assad on them as a return back to the war on Syria since uh, 2012. Um, so it's definitely a geopolitical issue that needs to be looked into. And Arasha, just before we end, if you could tell us who are the principal consumers, uh, who are the people who are addicted to Captagon in Syria, but also in Saudi Arabia and other places? I've heard horrific stories over a year and a half about uh, uh, young people, um, minors under 15, who consume this heavily uh, in all the countries that I've visited, in Jordan, in Lebanon, in Syria, and uh, at the Gulf. And uh, I've heard other stories uh, from prominent officials in the Middle East that some of them are being abused to be used as smugglers. So they, they are forced to become addicts and then they are used on the borders to become uh, smugglers because they cost almost nothing in return to the profit that goes back to those who are um, um, making use of this trade. Uh, so I'm really sorry to say that it's mostly young people. Some of them are targeted on purpose. But also there are like we've we've uh, interviewed in the film um, a user and he's he's under 22 years of old and he's been an addict for six years. Um, the atrocities he's been subjected to and told us are untold. It's 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 really sad to see a, a new generation relying on such substance um, and, and just not being able to. We're going to have to leave it there because we're having trouble with the um, with the Skype connection. Rasha Kandil, I want to thank you so much for being with us, Senior Fellow, Center for International Policy, presenter for BBC Arabic. You can see the new documentary, Captagon, Inside Syria's Drug Trafficking Empire, on YouTube. And Dr. Zahar Salul, president and CEO of Med Global. And back in 30 seconds with Congressmember Ro Khanna. Stay with us. Oh
To Remain, To Return by Aruj Aftab. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh as we spend the rest of the hour with Democratic Congressmember Rokana, who's several topics to discuss with us. Um, Congressmember, thanks so much for being with us. Joining us, though, you represent California from Charleston, South Carolina. We want to start with your introduction of a bill to limit Supreme Court justices to 18-year terms. What are you calling for? Amy, most Americans have seen that the Supreme Court is just wildly out of touch with the facts of modern life. They're taking away rights from women. They are penalizing students who are poorer. They are making campuses less diverse. Uh, they're t rolling back environmental legislation. So what we are saying is let's have term limits on these justices. Every president gets two appointments. The justices get 18 years and then they can go serve on a lower court so they remain a judge for life under the Constitution. And what about the number of uh, Supreme Court justices one president can choose? I've heard the number two. Uh, you know, Trump chose three, of course. Exactly. Every president would get two appointments. And so this would prevent something like the Merrick Garland situation, which is cast such illegitimacy on the court, where Mitch McConnell just blocked President Obama from picking someone and then expedited the process for Trump to get three appointments. Now, every president would get an appointment, uh, two appointments in their four-year term. And Congressmember, can you also talk about being the sole person, I think it was 58 to 1, on the House Armed Services Committee to vote no on the new Pentagon budget? Well, Amy, it's not a distinction that I want. I wish more of my colleagues would recognize what is so obvious to many Americans, that you have a bloated Pentagon budget. Defense contractors are making extraordinary profits, having uh, goods sold to the American public at 1,000, 10,000 percent uh, inflation. And we need to tackle that. So the money is not just going to troops. It's not just going to national security. It's lining the pockets of many of these defense executives. And we're approaching almost a trillion dollar defense budget. It's nearly 56 percent of discretionary income. I rather that we be investing some of that money in our schools here at home, in creating good jobs here at home, in helping the working class. I also wanted to ask you about the uh, visit of Prime Minister Modi. Um, President Biden welcomed the Indian prime minister to the White House, praising a new era in U.S.-India relations, the trip roundly condemned by human rights advocates. At least five Democratic lawmakers announced plans to boycott Modi's joint address to Congress, including Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Cori Bush, Jamal Bowman. In a post on social media, Congressmember Tlaib wrote, It's shameful that Modi's been given a platform at our nation's capital, his long history of human rights abuses, anti-democratic actions targeting Muslims and religious minorities, and censoring journalists is unacceptable, she said. More than 70 Democrats in the House and Senate also signed a letter urging Biden to focus on human rights in talks with Modi. Uh, Congressmember Khanna, many in the progressive community were surprised to learn 
Byrne, you were not only in favor of Modi addressing a joint session of Congress and Biden welcoming Modi with a rare state dinner, one of the highest diplomatic honors bestowed in a foreign leader, but you were a major engine for this. Um, Amit uh, Srivastava wrote in Truthout, why did Rep Khanna, who positions himself as a progressive, choose to invite Modi in spite of the prime minister and the BJP's track record of violence and bigotry, especially at a moment when the Uttarakhand and Manipur violence are escalating. The answer lies in the U.S.-India defense partnership and the drive toward war. It's clear that in the context of a growing Cold War with China and Russia, the West has decided it's time to withdraw India in, even if it means playing to the megalomania of an authoritarian leader. Your response, Congressmember Khanna? Well, it's a fair question. Uh, I believe that uh, the prime minister is an elected leader of 1.4 billion people. And the way to make progress on human rights uh, is to engage with uh, the Indian prime minister. I also am sensitive that India is two generations removed for, from colonialism. My grandfather, as you know, spent uh, years in jail uh, under uh, British colonialism and then was part of the Congress party advocating for pluralism. So the idea that India is going to respond uh, simply by being lectured from the West uh, is not going to work. And in my view, is similar to Farid Zakaria's or President Obama's, that we have to engage India, uh, a rising democracy, uh, an ally, though they have problems, uh, and then have a conversation about the challenge of multiracial, multiethnic democracy. And that means respecting minority rights. It means uh, making sure that Sikhs, Muslims, Christians, all are treated uh, equally and having those candid uh, conversations with uh, the prime minister and others, as I did uh, when I had the opportunity to meet the prime minister. But to uh, simply boycott a country that has chosen to elect their own uh, a leader, I think, would be a mistake and not actually advance human rights uh, in India. According to The Nation, you received more than $110,000 from Hindu nationalist figures in the United States. Your response? Well, we raise millions of dollars online. There are many Indian Americans who contribute uh, to our campaign, many Pakistani Americans I mean, uh, who contribute to our campaign. Uh, I don't ask their uh, view on uh, Indian politics uh, when they're contributing. But certainly I have gone out of my way to criticize uh, right wing nationalism uh, in India, to stand up for pluralism and even have in the last two election cycles had a challenger uh, who has been supported by some of the extreme elements because they didn't like my stance on pluralism. Well, I want to thank you for being with us, Congressmember O'Connor, Democratic Congressmember from California, Deputy Whip of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, just recently voted no on the Pentagon budget, um, the sole voice in the Armed Service Committee. The vote was 58 to 1, that vote from Rokana. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Faust, Mike Burke, Dina Guster, Messiah Rhodes, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warren, Afterina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamari Astudio. John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Massoud, and Sanji Lopez, our executive director, Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nagara, Hugh Grand, Dennis Moynihan, David Prude, and Dennis McCormick. To see our interviews and video and audio podcasts, you can go to democracynow.org and sign up there for our daily news digest. 
I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Thanks so much for joining us.